Last week I started a series entitled uh, Timeless Truths in Changing Times, and our times are ever-changing, but the truth stays the same. So whether you, uh, you are going through a tough time, a troubling time, a challenging time, I pray that uh, you'll get something great out of this series. Last week we talked about, in, we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 3, and we talked about being selected before the world, and God uh, did select us, and He chose us out of the world even before He flung the stars into the heavens and before He uh, cut out all of the oceans and heaped up the mountains. The, the Scriptures say that He loved us, He knew us, and He selected us. And then secondly, we talked about that He has scattered us. We were scattered throughout the world. So uh, we were selected before the world. We were scattered throughout the world as seed. And uh, the, the more that Rome tried to stamp out the early Christians, uh, the more they just spread the embers of Christianity throughout the known world. Now, not only are the saints selected from the world, and not only are they scattered uh, throughout the world, but thirdly, we are secure from the world. We're secure from the world. Um, do you remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? He, uh, he prayed a lot, but he said, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but I pray that you will keep them from the world. How does God do that? Well, first of all, first off, we're, we are assured of our salvation. We're assured of our salvation. First Peter uh, 1 and 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are assured, assured of our salvation through these few words. This verse speaks, I think, very eloquently to the assurance of our salvation. Now, the first thing I want you to see about this assurance of our salvation is that, number one, it is rooted in mercy. It is rooted in mercy. It says in verse 3, in His great mercy. You see, there are people now that believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, whether or not you lose it depends upon how you got it. And if you got it by good works, you can lose it by bad works. But if you were saved by grace, you are kept by grace. And salvation is not rooted in the merit of man, but in the mercy of God. Because of His great mercy, 1 Peter 1.3 says. And listen, that can never be taken away by lack of merit. You didn't merit it in the first place. You never will merit it, and our assurance is rooted in mercy. But secondly, it results in a birth. It results in a birth. It says, He has given us new birth. Now, this literally means that we were born again. Do you ever get confused about that particular phrase that describes most of you here today? Um, it just describes your salvation experience. You, are, you have been given a new birth. And the verb tense on the word given is really very important. 
And you guys know I don't do a lot of Greek because I don't really know Greek. I don't really know Hebrew, but I have lots of uh, you know, commentaries and stuff that do know Greek very well. And so what's really important about the tense of this verse, it's in a particular tense. Uh, the King, King James says, begotten. It's all the same, same word. Very significant. It means once and for all, and it can never happen again. The aorist tense of the word given. It means that it is given, and it is once and for all, and it can never be given again. You can only be born again one time, just like you can only be born physically one time. Now, does this mean that once saved, always saved? Well, in a sense, yes, but some hear that and believe if that's true, then they're going to get saved and then just sin all they want to. But let me tell you, I sin all I want to, I don't want to. Now listen, if the only thing that keeps you from sinning is the fear of losing your salvation, then I doubt whether or not you've really, truly been saved. Peter says later that when we are born again, we become partakers of the divine nature. And I don't want to sin. I'd be happy if I never sinned again. And if you still want to sin, you need to be saved. And you've come to the right place today for salvation. But listen, here's the difference. Before you were saved, you were running towards sin. Now that you're saved, you should be running from sin. When you are born again, when you are truly saved by God's grace, you will have an uncontrollable desire to please Christ and live every waking moment for Him. It doesn't mean that you're not going to slip and fall from time to time. We're all going to sin. You're certainly going to. But the difference now is that when you sin, you, if not immediately, you become ashamed of it. And you repent of it. And you seek God's forgiveness of it. And that's what happens when we are partakers of of the divine nature. And I'm, sec I'm secure from this work because salvation is rooted in mercy and it results in a birth. But third, it rests in a resurrection. It rests in a resurrection. It says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because he lives, I live. Because I'm a part of him, and he can never die, I can never die. I am not just looking at Jesus, I am a part of Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. My friends, our salvation is secure from this world because it is rooted in mercy. It results in a birth and it rests in a resurrection. But not only do we find security from this world through our salvation, but if you look at verse 5, you'll find that we are secure because we are shielded. We are shielded, or we are kept by the power of God. 
Look at verse 5, if you will. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This word shielded or kept is literally a military word. It means to be garrisoned about, as you would put soldiers on the outside and inside of a fort. And it's not just by, uh, by kept by the power of God. The proper reading of this should be kept in the power of God. That is, think of the power of God as a fortress, and you're there on the inside. You know, sometimes we think that we protect ourselves and that we are holding on. God, I'm holding on to you. You know, Father was taking his little, little son across the very busy intersection, and when, you know, the, the light changed and that lit up white, you know, the colored, you know, guy walking, you know, this guy walking, you know, the sign popped up, and uh, they got there a li- little bit late, and so he, the little boy just had, had a hold of one little finger, and he had just learned to walk, and so his dad was going to let him walk across the street for the first time, and he had him. But then all of a sudden, the light changed in the middle of this big intersection, and the traffic started to come. And immediately, he reached down, picked up the boy, the boy hugged his neck, and went running across the street. And when he got to the other side, the little boy said, I held on, Daddy. Or did the daddy hold on to him? We sometimes think that we're in control of our destiny or control of our, uh, all of our decisions and so forth, and to an extent we are. But it is God who keeps us. And I think if somehow we make it you know, through an accident or, or just a close call of any kind, we say, boy, that was close. And we don't see the spiritual world that God had us in his embrace all the time. Well, let me tell you, friends, he holds us. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24 say, If the Lord delights in a man's ways, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. And so, my friends, we were selected before the world. We were scattered throughout the world as seed, seeds for the gospel. And we are saved and secure from the world. But I want you to see something else this morning. Fourthly, we are satisfied without this world. We are satisfied without this world. First of all, I want you to see we are saved to an inheritance. We're saved to an inheritance. Let me read verses 4 and 5 to you. Follow along, if you will. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What are we saved to? To an inheritance that can never perish that can never spoil that can never fade i I don't know about you you know but i i look at my investments in this life look at your investments the financial investments 
And you see them spoiling, perishing, fading every day. Maybe not every day, but uh, it'll get better. But our inheritance in heaven with Christ doesn't spoil, doesn't fade, doesn't perish, none of that. You see, we don't have to worry and fret because oh, so-and-so has got a bigger house than me. Because this person over here is driving a brand new, uh, what, whatchamacallit car, and I'm still driving my old 15-year-old clunker. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about somebody else having more of this worldly wealth than you do. Let me tell you, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you already have an inheritance. You have a great inheritance. Listen to how Peter describes it. 1 Peter 1.4 says, And into an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, kept in heaven, kind of like you picture the bank of heaven, kept in heaven for you. Number one, it is faultless. It is faultless. It won't perish. It won't decay. The King James describes our inheritance as incorruptible. And the CSB, the uh, Christian Standard Bible, says imperishable. These words together mean that your inheritance is faultless and indestructible. It will not decay. It won't rust and it won't spoil. Secondly, it's faultless. It's faultless. It, it just uh, won't spoil. Let, let, let me tell you, we sometimes think of our inheritance as, as going down one day and going up another day. We think of our investments as going down one day and, and going up one day. There's only one way, one place that your inheritance is going. It will never go down, and you can actually increase it. You can increase it by your good works. You can increase it by giving to the Lord. You can increase it by giving financially or giving of yourself to the Lord. You can help somebody who is in need. What, a million different ways that you can increase your inheritance in the Lord. But not only is it faultless, it's flawless, absolutely flawless. The King James says that our inheritance is undefiled. And the New International Version says, never spoiled. No high-powered attorney is going to find a flaw in this inheritance. You can read your title clear. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross for you, he said that from upon this cross and upon my, my dying body, it is finished. And then he committed his life to the Lord and he died. He said it is finished. It is paid in full. Our inheritance is faultless. It is flawless, and it is thoroughly fadeless. It is fadeless. It will not fade. It will not diminish in value. Now, heaven is not our inheritance. Did you know that? It is just a place where our inheritance is safely and securely stored. What is our inheritance? Our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. I want you to look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 28. I'll have it up here on the screen. God says to the priest, and remember, I said last week, we are all priests. We are all princes. We're, we're part of the royal 
family if you know Jesus Christ. And he said, Ezekiel writes, I am to be the only inheritance the priests have. So he's quoting God as a prophet. He speaks for the Lord. And the Lord said, I am to be the only inheritance the priests have. And because we're all priests, we can enjoy that inheritance. You are to give them no possession in Israel. I will be their possession. And I think if we really knew what we had in Jesus Christ, we would never be jealous of anybody else from this point forward. Think about it. You don't need anything if you have everything. Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our inheritance. It is kept for us, and we are kept for it. And so, my friends, we are to be satisfied without the world. As we see Jesus, sometimes... Think of these words, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy many of the things that we are refreshed by, that uh, God gives us great pleasure in. There's many, many things, many things to enjoy. But I am saying that these things will never satisfy. They won't satisfy the deep longings within our hearts and within our souls Only in Jesus will you ever truly be satisfied. So we've been selected from the world, scattered through the world. We're secure from the world. Thank goodness for that. And we're satisfied without this world. But number five, we will suffer in this world. I've got to tell you the whole truth of the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1. And it says that we will suffer. I I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't say the whole truth. Let's look at verse 6. That's where we find it. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials or in all kinds of trials. I want you to see something this morning about suffering. Let's look at suffering just for a few moments. I want you to see the difficulties of it. The difficulties of it. The pain of suffering. All kinds of trials. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you have an illness that has gone undiagnosed until now. Or maybe it is not diagnosed and you're filled with worry and concern about the future. There could be many issues. Maybe you're suffering because of persecution. Many ways that we suffer suffer in, in, in this world. And so there are the difficulties of it. But I want you to see the restraint of it. Because suffering, thank goodness, praise God, is restrained by His hand. If God doesn't cause it, He certainly controls it. And it says there, now, in verse 6, for a little while. For a little while. And then I want you to see the results of it. Not only does He restrain it and hold it back and, and, and keep it within certain parameters, but there are certain results that we need to be aware of. Look at verse 7. There it is. So so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise 
and in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I wonder when the last time is that you went through a period of great suffering and can honestly say, hey man, I, I came through this uh, with, with flying colors. I, I came through this uh, honoring God, glorifying God, worshiping God. And if so, praise God. That is the way we are as Christians to see suffering. And when others, like non-believers out there, see you responding to your time of suffering, those difficult times, although God may be restraining it, it's suffering, it's very real for you. When they see you handle it in such a way, they are drawn toward Him. When a Middle Eastern goldsmith purified gold, he would, he would hammer that gold out. He would, he would melt it down. And, you know, I don't know what the temperature is for melting gold, but it would get really hot. And he would try to burn off all of the impurities. And the impurities kind of float to the surface, so he would very carefully try not to remove much gold, but skim off those impurities. And he knew that he had pure gold when he could see his face, when he could see his reflection in that gold. And that is what Jesus is doing with us. He allows suffering. He allows those trials with high hopes that our faith might be refined and proven genuine. He wants a faith that's proved genuine. And when he looks into our face, he wants to see his reflection. And that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is trying to do in each of our lives. Now, a Christian is someone who is selected before the world, somebody who has scattered throughout the world, somebody who is secure in their salvation from the world, and who is satisfied without the world, and who will suffer in the world. But lastly, my friends, listen, we will be saved out of the world. We will be saved out of the world. Verses 7 through 9. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, <laughs> you love him. Though not uh, seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm looking forward to this time. Did you get that last line? The goal of your faith? Now that word for goal means the end uh, of your life. It means your destination. It means the end goal. What is the end? What is the final destination for your life? It's to see Him face to face. Now, friend, if you have the beginning, you're going to get the end. This will be when Jesus comes back for us to take, him to, uh, to take us out of this world and to be with Him forever. Oh, how glorious it will be when we see Him face to face. I've never seen him, 
but I love him. When William Montague Dyke was um, 10 years old, he was blinded in an accident. And despite his disability, he went on to graduate from a prestigious university in England with high honors at the top of his class. When he was in school, though, he he fell in love with the daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer, and they became engaged. Not long before the wedding, William had eye surgery in the hope that the operation would restore his sight. If it failed, he would remain blind for the rest of his life. William insisted on keeping the bandages on his face until the wedding day. If the surgery was successful, he wanted to be uh, the first person, he wanted his bride, rather, to be the first person that he saw when he could see again, if, in fact, the surgery worked. The wedding day arrived. Many guests, including royalty and cabinet members and distinguished men and women of society, uh, they all came. They assembled together to witness this exchange of vows. Uh, William's father, Sir William Hart Dyke, and the doctor who performed the surgery stood next to young William, uh, whose eyes were still covered with bandages, and the organ trumpeted the uh, wedding march, and the beautiful bride slowly walked down the aisle to the front of the church. And as soon as she arrived at the altar, the surgeon took a pair of scissors and snipped uh, the bandages away from William's eyes. Tension filled the room, as you can imagine. The congregation of witnesses held their breath as you're holding yours right now. He couldn't wait to see the woman standing before him. And sure enough, as he stood face to face with his bride-to-be, William's words echoed through the cathedral, You are more beautiful than I imagined. The grand hope of the Christian is to see Jesus face to face. For Jesus is the one who died for our sins so that we could receive forgiveness, so that we could um, receive this gift of eternal life in heaven with Him. He died for all, but only those who accept His offer of salvation will receive His grace. That's how it's going to be with Jesus when we see Jesus face to face. We will receive the end of our faith the destination, the goal of our faith, the fullness of our salvation. So let me give you a timeless truth for these changing times. This world is not our home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I just lift up this final part of the service to you. Lord, we often see this part of the service as we're nearing the end as a time of getting our stuff together and making sure we got our phone and checking out this and that and the other. But Father, it could be the most important part of the service. As we approach this altar that remains open and clear for anyone who 
would choose to come and kneel and pray. I pray that if any, if there's anyone here who hasn't yet received you as Lord, and they're not really ready for their final destination, I pray that they will, they'll get ready today. I pray that this day will be the day of their salvation, that they will pray something like this, Lord. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and and that you rose again from the grave. And I know I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy. But I know that you will receive me as I am. So Jesus, would you please forgive me for my sins? Come into my life. Take over my life. May I live for you the rest of my life. And I thank you for changing my life from the inside out. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that if anyone has prayed that prayer, they'll make it public. They'll make it public like with their family or with somebody next to them or they'll come forward during this invitation time and talk to the deacon or to myself so that we can begin praying for them and helping them grow in their new faith. But for all of us here, Father, we sometimes face a miserable world that throws all kinds of circumstances in our direction, all kinds of problems and troubles, sorrow upon sorrow. But help us to know that this world is not our home, that we're just passing through, sojourning, if you will. So, Father, we thank you for the security of our salvation. We thank you that it's not us who's holding on to you, but you hold on to us. You keep us. You guard our souls. So, Father, we ask that at this time you speak into our hearts and that we will respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.